0: Well, an extraordinary day in Washington yesterday. I like what um, Axios says this morning, Jim Vander talking about American politics off the rails. Our Kevin Cirilli in Washington really seconding that, uh, the mystery of where we are to Thursday with uh, Judge Kavanaugh and the Deputy Attorney General as well. We will stay focused on one of the great themes, and we have a wonderful guest, John, this morning to begin this conversation on our trade war, on our tariffs on our taxes which i think is another word for tariffs if i studied my spence over the years he is michael spence of new york university and of course a laureate with Akerlof and stiglitz and a glorious year what was it like to get on stage with Akerlof and stiglitz were you guys on speaking terms
1: oh absolutely yeah, no, we'd known each other for years. We'd been colleagues at Harvard uh, or Stanford, in my case, with Joe. Yeah. Um, no, it was a, a joyful occasion.
0: It's a joyful occasion right now, President Xi and uh, Mr. Trump, President Trump, keeping up good faith. But the fact is, these are grievous rifts between China and America. Yeah. What is your observation of the choice set, the set of ideas that the president has right now?
1: Well, you know, there's considerable debate about that, but it looks like what the president in a fairly confrontational way is renegotiating the terms of engagement with China and other countries.
2: Professor, it's always great to get your insight on things. And we're well aware that you also serve as a consultant and advisor to some really big asset managers like PIMCO. What are you telling them right now? What are you advising them about the vulnerabilities in emerging markets off the back of this trade dispute between the United States and China?
1: Well, there's considerable uncertainty about um, the impact the, of the of the of the confrontation between the United States and China on the emerging economies, and I think it, the reason for that is it's just simply too hard to figure out. Uh, or there's, if you drew a decision tree, there's too many branches on it to kind of get to the end. But but it's certainly true that the emerging economies have. Uh, gotten themselves out of balance uh, in the post-crisis period with, you know, things that I at least thought were, you know, mistakes that wouldn't be made again, like borrowing in hard currency, running large current account deficits, etc. Um, and I was wrong about that. So th- there is some rebalancing. I, I don't think it's, it, it, it's fatal at this point. Whether... You know, the, one of the reasons it's hard to figure out what the longer term effects are is China, one of China's objectives is to be a positive influence in the developing world. That's part of their game plan of becoming a more influential country um, or nation around the world. And, and so they're well on the way to doing that. And China's engagement in terms of investment and other things could, could be, uh, you know, pretty positive in a lot of emerging economies.
2: Well, know? there is this sort of optimistic tone out there at the moment, Professor, that maybe China shifts towards an easing bias and an easing bias which could well stimulate the emerging world. Um, Do you have that confidence? Do you share that optimism? Um,
1: I think there's some easing that's likely in the cards as they try to buffer their economy. But but for the emerging economies, access to their technologies, like the digital technologies, which are very advanced in China, access to the Chinese market are really crucial things. So I, I think there's justified optimism based on, on China's longer-term objectives. Uh, whether the easing, the short-term, you know, kind of monetary uh, and fiscal responses are particularly positive for EMs, I, I'm, I'm not so sure.
0: You had an important insight, Professor, on television. I want to advance that forward on radio. We've got the advantage of doing that on a radio. In hindsight, which is that we've gone awfully far in our multilateral world, and people are rebelling against the multilateral outcome. Did we go too far?
1: In a way, I think we did. Um, you know, Danny Roderick is a very knowledgeable right. commentator on this, and what Danny says is that for most of the period where the GAT was the sort of the evolving government right. structure, um, the principle was nations agreed provided it looked like it was broadly beneficial by their own values and standards and at some point he associates it with the ascendancy of the or the the WTO coming into existence the global the, the rules in the of the system became mm-hmm. you know inviolable and Then countries had to adapt You know to a system we agreed on but you didn't get to tinker with that with that system and I think that's the sense in which is how he would put the proposition that we went too far
0: this is critical because danny roderick and brad DeLong, i would also put in this group have looked carefully at the bargain we made and we didn't follow through on and that we said for labor that was crushed by international trade we would provide domestic support and we didn't do that out of nafta and frankly out of other trade agreements if that's a missing link is there any political tone to help labor that's crushed by the the societal advantages of international trade? I don't see it out there. I don't see any political oomph to help out retail or to help out uh, 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 textile workers in, in the Carolinas.
1: I think that's a fair observation, Tom. It, it, you know, I, I, I suspect we may see a change in that um, if the, a large contingent of Democrats get elected in the midterm elections because this, this kind of thing is clearly on their agenda. Mm-hmm. And, and we may go too far in the other direction um, and start mucking up market performance. But, uh, but I think what you said is right. There's been a lot of talk, but not a lot of action on that front.
0: Well, we have to leave it there. Michael Spence, thank you so much. The laureate from New York University. I really can't say enough about uh, his work in Project Syndicate. I've made very clear through the crisis, his essays have been crucial to uh, making us think further uh, on where we are within the crisis and beyond. Right now, Christopher Rohn speaks to us, with strategists. Chris, there's like eight ways to go always within technical analysis, but your call on oil is so important. We have to start with that. How do you determine a breakout? You have a rising trend, I get that, but then how do you know that the breakout is there?
3: Well, we have to put this in context of the trend like you say, Tom, and let's remember the last six or seven months, even as oil consolidated, it consolidated from the benefit of an uptrend oil sideways for six or seven months above the upward sloping 200-day moving average. So we are inclined to believe the validity of this breakout getting up through 80 on Brent. We think low 90s, maybe 95 is the next target here.
0: Talk in technological talk what momentum means. I've never understood that. You know, Roe equals MV and all the other Newtonian MV we have. What does momentum mean to chart people?
3: Momentum uh, clearly is an academic term. As technicians, we call it trend. It's simply rate of change. I think when you look back at different factors that have been proven to work over time, momentum is the most reliable of those. What we know about momentum is it's very mean reverting yeah. in the short term, right? It's very random in the short term, but very powerful over the longer term. And
0: John, what's so important about this John Farrell is Chris Verone nailed that and that the trend is your drift function, it's your momentum, not a further inertial force from the trend. That's, to me, where a lot of people get this wrong.
2: Was that enough physics, John? That was really impressive, Tom. Thank you. Thank you. you can, can we get to just how this oil market has really changed, Chris, in the last several years? Several years ago, someone told me, think about the oil market as if it has a ceiling that once we get to 60, 65, the crude comes online in the United States and it drives prices lower. And now I'm just hearing, think about the crude market with a floor. We have a supply risk story in the market now. How has it changed that much? Why has it changed that much? And just a couple of years. Yeah, I... I I would make maybe
3: two or three observations. I would say, number one, the idea that uh, crude had a ceiling on it in the mid-60s or low-70s, I think, became a very, very consensus view. And as we know, what do markets like to do? They like to challenge consensus views. I think the big change from 2013, 2014, 2015, when oil was under a lot of pressure, that was a credit-driven move. If you look at energy sector credit, it was under lots and lots of pressure uh, during that two or three-year period. That has been different over the last 18 months. Even though the energy stocks haven't been fantastic, we haven't seen the systemic risk emerge from energy credit. I think that's a very important uh, distinguishing factor. You've had energy high yield spreads actually make new lows this week. I think that is supportive both for uh, oil price itself uh, and for the energy stocks uh, in particular.
2: So you believe there's discipline in the credit market now, Chris, that was absent a couple of years ago? It
3: certainly reflects that. And at the end of the day, I am very reluctant to embrace the equities when credit conditions are weakening. So I certainly welcome the improvement that we've seen, uh, most notably over the last six months. Even as oil was consolidating this year, credit conditions were still stable. That is an asset uh, for the stocks.
0: Let's go back to the equity markets. And the fundamental people will notice the narrowness of the market, only selected stocks really doing well. How do you fold that into technical analysis? You look at sectors, you look at individual charts, but how do you take the Apple-Amazon effect into uh, what you're doing?
3: Tom, I have to say, I think that's one of the most overstated fallacies of 2018. Thank you. This market is not as narrow as commonly described. Let me give you three iterations of the S&P. Please. We know the cap-weighted S&P is at new highs. That's the index we look at every day. Well, the equally weighted uh, S&P is also at new highs as is the reverse weighted S&P. So if all your large weights, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, become your smallest weights, that index is still making new highs. So it's difficult for me to buy the market is dangerously narrow story when all these different iterations of the index are actually making new highs. And What we did recently, we looked at a distribution of Russell 1000 returns by market cap. Believe it or not, it's the second and third quintiles, the belly of the market, that has actually outperformed this year. So that is not where you find your biggest stock. So I think this story um, that it's only four or five names leading this market uh, is just patently false.
2: Chris, for anyone that might have missed what you just said, are you essentially saying that if you make every single stock on the S&P 500 have exactly the same contribution to the overall index as the next stock, that this equity market's at a record high?
3: Yes, it is. And even if you take it one better, if you make Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, J.P. Morgan your smallest weights, um, the S&P is still uh, at an all-time high. So this idea that it's narrow, I, I just think is
2: not supported by the facts. Tom, I don't think people recognize that. I don't have many people come on this show with us at least and say that, do they?
0: No, I don't think so. I, I, I think that you know, the, the hallmark of what Chris is doing is just go through the data, go through the, the sectors. Where's the anomaly right now? Where's the distinction within the 30-page PowerPoint that you do?
3: I think what's most timely right here, perhaps, and maybe most underappreciated is the extent to which the industrial stocks have improved over the last three months. You have big bellwether names, whether it's Caterpillar or Boeing or Emerson Electric or Parker Hannafin, that Mm -hmm. that have meaningfully improved uh, over the last uh, 90 days. I think that is underappreciated here by uh, a lot of investors.
0: I mean, that's critical because these are not, you know, 15 price to sales, eight times cash flow you know, 13 times EBITDA stocks. They're like, they're still, are they, they're not cheap, right? But they're not expensive. (laughs) They're not expensive.
3: Caterpillar at one point this year was trading six or seven times uh, forward earnings. So just to put it in a little bit of context, and you know, think about some of these names. At one point or another in 2018, um, yeah. All of those stocks have been correlated to the emerging market trade. So yeah. the fact that they have bottomed and turned up, does that tell us that maybe EM is poised oh. to improve here a little bit? Something to think about going forward. Christopher
0: Roan, thank you so much. for strategist research today, just important work, particularly that a thought on oil to $90 a barrel. There is Facebook, there is Instagram, and then there's Sarah Ponzik with a combination of these two. And it's not only two guys from Instagram leaving, a lot of people. Are leaving Facebook, right?
4: Right. It is quite a shakeup at Facebook, but what's really standing out is Instagram because Instagram has just been such a growing area for Facebook and it has become more and more important. So people are saying that, okay, well, if the CEOs or the founders, I mean, of Instagram are now leaving, what does that mean for the importance of Instagram going forwards for Facebook? But either way, Facebook is down 2% this morning, so we'll have to see more going forwards. Sticking in the same type of space, if you look at Square, it's a mobile payment company. This is run by Jack Dorsey who, of course, is also the CEO of Twitter. Square is actually up 2.5% this morning. Now, an analyst over at Nomura Instant put out a note saying, well, Square should probably be the newest member of the FANG complex. The analyst also raised his price target. Yeah, so adding Facebook, adding Amazon, Netflix, Google. Okay. So they're saying that okay. it's shaking up the space. It should be in there. Anyway, it's helping the price. We've got Asina. So one of the retailers that owns brands including Dress Barn and Taylor, Loft, Justice, those brands might be better known than Acina, but the stock is up 18% today. After reporting killer earnings yesterday after the close, that beat estimates. They also had its first comparable sales growth in three years. And then Tilray, it's been in the news the past week or so, up 16%. Well, Tilray this morning said it's successfully exported medical marijuana to Australia to distribute to children who suffer from epilepsy. So it was down the past three days. Investors are using this to snap those losses, get into the stock till we're up 16% this morning. few upgrades and downgrades for you. Workiva. Now this is a company that provides cloud and mobile software. It's based out of Iowa. Up 14% after it was upgraded at Bear to an Outperform Science Applications International, also known as SAIC. This is an enterprise technology company upgraded to a buy from Hold at Jeffries. It is down one percent mm-hmm. actually, and Heritage Crystal Clean Cleaning Services Company. It was upgraded to an outperform from neutral at Baird as well. Sarah,
0: sure, thank you so much. Thank you. Futures up five, Bill.
5: Joining us now is Patrick Gregory of Bloomberg Law. He covers the Supreme Court for us. Patrick, you know, with all of this back and forth over the nomination of Brent Kavanaugh, it's possible to forget that the Supreme Court is going to be open for business in October. And I'm wondering if you could tell us what is on the docket and what should we be looking for?
6: Well, um, that's true. And even Thursday, we're going to get some uh, orders and cases uh, that could grant review or deny review in some important cases. One case I'm covering involves a high school coach who was praying on a football field and was suspended for that. So that's a case the court could grant review in. And then uh, in October, it's really going to be, it's not um, a whole lot of hot button issues um, in the October term, but we'll have to see.
5: All right. So not a lot of hot button issues. So does it matter then whether the Supreme Court has a full complement of justices?
6: Um, of course, it matters to the parties involved and to some extent. But I would I would say that the real deadline here is going to be uh, November midterms.
5: Why is that?
6: Well, because if Kavanaugh doesn't get confirmed, you look at that scenario and you could really have um, the Democratic voters be galvanized by a chance to block block the nominee
0: what do they do with the next nominee i mean i don't want to you know create any news flow here and and mr Kavanaugh, you know I, i saw one person say today i believe he's innocent until proved guilty but assuming mr Kavanaugh in some form steps aside what would you presume from the next nominee i mean is the is the process forever changed
6: I think we are certainly in new territory here, and that's why a lot of people say that there will be pressure on the president to appoint a woman, and there are a number of qualified women on his Supreme Court shortlist. A lot of people are talking about Amy Barrett, and there are are a couple of others.
5: As far as the cases that you describe that the Supreme Court will be hearing— are they able to put off important or contentious cases until they get a full complement of justice?
6: They have a lot of freedom over over when they schedule oral arguments and things like that, so sure.
0: You know, I, I, again, looking at the Supreme Court and the retiring uh, judges as, as well, I mean, it's a, am I right that in the history of the court, this is an exceptionally fluid moment in terms of not only bodies coming in such as Judge Kavanaugh, but also the idea of what retirements could be just in the next twelve months. Absolutely. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg <clears throat> is certainly getting up there
6: in terms of years. Clarence Thomas has been on the court since I was a kid. And yeah, it's You know, who knows what could happen? There could be another vacancy soon. We just don't
0: know. Oh, thank you so much, Patrick. We greatly appreciate that in the Supreme Court. Pimp Fox and Tom King from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios in New York. It is 5,300 miles south out of New York, out of JFK or Newark and you wander across Venezuela, then you really wander across the Amazon in Brazil down to Argentina. If you're lucky, you're on American Airlines flight AA953. And nobody has done this at Bloomberg more than Eric Schatzker, who has spent major time in Buenos Aires. I I want to talk about the central bank resignation and your interview yesterday with Mr. Macri, where I know he was managing the message in that. How are the people of Buenos Aires in Argentina doing? I mean, they're the ones living this crisis. Peso out right now, 38.64. We're going to make another dash to 40. How are the people of Argentina doing?
7: Uh, With difficulty.
0: I mean, it's like tangible,
7: right? Inflation, Tom, is at the highest level in Macri's presidency The last monthly figure was almost 35%. 35%. And it's it's heading up. Inflation is getting worse before it's getting better. The economy is getting worse before it's getting better. The best Mr. Macri could do was to say that he was hopeful that thanks to the weakness in the peso and the juice that it's giving exports, the Argentine economy might start turning around, might come out of recession in the second quarter of 2019. But
5: but didn't they just impose tariffs on exports of
7: wheat and soybeans? There are some, he calls them temporary emergency export taxes, but those are being put in place to try and restore uh, a budgetary balance. This is, you know, he is fighting fires. It's like it's like being in the midst of, it's like being in the Rockies this summer, right? There are okay. wildfires everywhere you look.
0: Before we get to the central banker, what does Madame Lagarde in the IMF want? They're going to write a big check. President Trump will say America's writing a check as a conduit through IMF. Ah, and to your what? point, yeah.
7: Macri said that he has had a lot of support. This wouldn't be happening without American support. That goes okay, without saying, fine. of course, but...
0: <clears throat> oh, noting he, that he, he wants to get dinner at Danielle's tonight. What I want to know, Eric, is and this is critical what does the IMF want this time around of the Argentinian crisis?
7: What's the IMF want? What we learned yesterday in the conversation that I had with Macri on television and we subsequently had with him for an additional half an hour behind the scenes on the record, I should add is that this agreement that he is talking about this new agreement with the imf which in theory is going to expand the size of the program from 50 billion to something else and accelerate disbursements from the fund to argentina is going to involve a change in monetary policy tom would and maybe this gets us to luis caputo resigning from the central bank of argentina would argentina be changing the way that it manages the economy on its own or is this a stipulation? I think it's Thank reasonable you. to ask, if not okay. conclude, well, we that this is a there. stipulation okay, but of the IMF. this is critical. We didn't go you there. Went, no, Justin you asked, Kerrigan you didn't that go was, there.
0: Are you well going done. there and saying this is a stipulation from who? Investors or IMF?
7: Well, what Macri told us yesterday... Yeah, do the report. And Don't again, this was I have to emphasize, this was not on television. He did talk about a change in monetary policy coming. He right. didn't go into a lot of detail. He said subsequently that the central bank needs to revamp, these are his words, revamp monetary policy, that the explanation for this would be coming in several weeks. But there was a recognition that manipulating a single interest rate was not effectively managing the Argentine economy. Is this a conclusion that Luis Caputo came to on his own? Remember, this is an independent central bank, ostensibly. Was this a conclusion that Federico Sturzenegger, his predecessor, who stepped down... Three months ago, did he step down of his own volition? We don't know. Um, Came to on his own. It's not clear. Now that we have the central bank governor resigning suddenly, only three months into his job, in the midst of a negotiation with the IMF, during which we learn from the president of the country that there will be Mm. a new monetary policy agreed to as part of this expanded aid package... There are a number of dots that we can start to okay. connect, don't you think? Well, let's
0: connect this. Pesos weaker, Shasker talks. That's the effect. Pim.
7: <laughs> well, Eric, I
5: guess I want to try to connect this to the larger theme of confidence and credibility. Because if you're going about an austerity program at the same time as you just described, that they have at least last measured 35 30% inflation, they have a devaluing currency, Uh, They have a variety of challenges that were unmet under previous administrations. Where does this leave their
7: credibility? Well, let's just start with where the credibility is now. Let's forget about where the credibility is going to be after this IMF package is formally announced and the markets have a chance to react to it. The credibility is in tatters. Part of the problem in Argentina over the past five months is that the government has done such a terrible job setting expectations. So not only has it set expectations too aggressively, it has dramatically underperformed the expectations it has created. Let's begin with the fact that starting the year, the Argentine government told the people of Argentina that economic growth would accelerate to 3% and inflation would come down to 15% by the end of the year. We know where inflation is now, running okay. north of 35% and probably close to 40 We know that the economy has entered recession. Yes, right. don't they overpromise. Suffered, they suffered, in his words, the worst drought in 50 years. Okay. Yes, there was an emerging markets crisis that probably contributed to the dramatic weakening of the peso. But to go to Tim's, Pim's point, Tom, about it's the Pim, credibility, Pim, Pim,
6: Pim,
7: on August the 29th, Mauricio Macri, the president, Was on national television talking to Argentines about the need for an accelerated IMF program. How many times have you been to Argentina? Saying that we had it. He said, Amos. Acuerdo, oh, oh, acuerdo. We have now. an agreement. There was you, the no, agreement. There stop, no agreement. There's still stop, no agreement.
0: Stop there. What are you, the former mayor of New York? You're talking Spanish now? <laughs> um, Bloomberg Bloomberg's Spanish. There's only one guy that can do that, and his name's on the building. Eric Schatzker, quickly here. This is important. Frame what Argentina is for our American audience. It's a million miles away. It's, it's something out of eva peron and all that we are wrong 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 in our stereotypes what's the so what of argentina is it a diverse economy is it, it defines most people's fair
7: concept of the, a latin american nation why it's broadly educated university education is free there's a large middle class argentina is the second largest economy in latin america and if i'm not mistaken the second the largest okay. grain exporter we know yes. it because of its beef but this is as European a country as there is in Latin it America. Is in probably okay. in you know in the current We're brilliant, it probably looks a lot more like Italy can, than it does Brazil. a yeah. yeah. no, very,
5: yeah, very good point.
0: Michael, are you going to do the news in Spanish? Can we can we do that today? I mean, Chatskis talking Spanish here. I can't keep. I up. can
7: barely do it in English
2: It's
5: going to happen. We noticed recently, <laughs> and as well. I'll just offer this: that uh, in Argentina, at least in Buenos Aires, has the highest per capita number of psychologists per person.
0: Where do You come up with this stuff. Eric Schatzker, thank you for your continual reporting, uh, Mr. Macri, and uh, the unique features of Argentina. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen.